We Will Not Be Tamed, a Texas Parks and Wildlife Foundation podcast that encourages all Texans to get involved in conserving the wild things and wild places of our state. Hello, I'm Lydia Saldana with the Texas Parks and Wildlife Foundation. And today my guests are our coastal fisheries experts. We've got Pat Murray with us, who's the president of the Coastal Conservation Association, and David Abrego, who's the facility director with Sea Center Texas with Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. Hi guys. Hey Lydia. Hey Lydia. Glad you're glad you're here today. Um, so we're we're actually recording this on election day, but uh, by the time it airs, with any luck, we'll know who the president is. But we're not going to talk politics today. We're going to talk about fish. <laughs> um, and Pat, I want to start first of all just checking in with you about how CCA is navigating through the pandemic. I, I would imagine that y'all have had to pivot. I know y'all have had to pivot with events as we all have, but just how are you doing? Um, well, thanks for asking. Uh, that's always that's always a good question this, through these days and always yields some interesting answers. Um, we have indeed pivoted. Um, at times it's felt more like a convulsion um, and other times <laughs> it, it's felt smoother, but um, you know, it's interesting, like all things, um, we're finding opportunity to, you know, obviously our banquets, which are our grassroots fundraising efforts were largely put on hold. Um, but this is done in the backdrop of fishing being at all time highs and more anglers than ever, uh, anglers returning to saltwater fishing, new anglers. And so we've seen tournament participation in Texas in particular um, at all time highs through our, through our star tournament. And, um, and in the end, um, that's going to yield a lot of positive. And I don't mean just the tournament participation. I mean, the people returning to or, or initiating efforts in saltwater fishing, because I think what we've seen through time, I know within CCA in the past 40 years, we've seen is that the greatest conservation victories um, are often driven by recreational anglers. And so with more players on the field, we're going to see more amazing plays. And we're going to see more people that go fishing, let's say, for the first time and catch a fish or hope to catch a fish. And that experience is going to turn into that passion that's going to turn into the drive to make resources better. And so in the end, that's one of the green shoots we're seeing starting to emerge um, through this, this challenge. That's a, that's a great, great outlook on this. And, and David, I would ask you the same question. Um, how has the pandemic affected your work and, the, and visitation to Sea Center? Well, it, uh, it made, it's made a major impact on our visitation. Uh, you know, when the um, pandemic hit, we were right on the verge of beginning our red drum and spotted sea trout production. And we are we're also on the verge of, uh, you know, the new school year where we have you know, literally hundreds of children that come to the facility to, to learn about what we do and conservation and stuff. And uh, once once uh, it hit, we had to shut down our volunteer program and close the visitor center. And as you know, our, our volunteer program is a very large one. We have over 150 volunteers that work here. And uh, of course, uh, that was the easiest thing to do, you know, was to shut that down. Uh, the hard thing was, of course, to adapt to the pandemic and continue to do our work. Uh, we were deemed essential because uh, hatchery and stock enhancement is essential to our natural resources. So uh, 
what we ended up doing was, uh, of course, we followed all the rules that uh, that the governor had laid out for us. Uh, we we had to adapt our work schedules at the beginning. We had to split up, basically, we're uh, into two different groups so that there wasn't any cross contamination or anything like that. And uh, we just continued on. We had no intentions of not meeting our goals. We uh, were focused on uh, fish production because as Pat and, and you know, uh, stock enhancement is extremely important uh, program for the Coastal Fisheries Division. And, uh, and, and, we want, and we never, never failed to meet our goals. So we continued our work. And uh, when uh, I think it was around May, when we were able to go to 25%, we ended up everybody coming back to work and you know we we follow uh all the rules of social distancing uh we wear our mask uh, we, we're sanitizing everything but we uh, continue to do uh our daily activities and uh, we actually opened up the visitor center again oh, and that's great to hear yeah, yeah we got that open again and uh of course visitation is is down you know uh Right now, we're averaging around 200, 250 people a week. During the summer, it was a little bit higher. But, you know, in the years past, you know, during the summer, uh, it's not unusual to have about 1,500 people come during the week. So uh, we got that happening. Uh, we actually even had a, a uh, uh, outreach event this past uh, weekend for Halloween. And we had a carnival where, where uh, cars came through uh, dressed up and uh, we had <laughs> candy and stuff. And, and we also continued our education program. Visitor center, even though the volunteers weren't working and the visitor center was closed, we continued to work on, on, a, on the visitor center side. We had a, a lot of distance learning classes that, were, uh, that we promoted. Well, perfect for the times, for sure. <laughs> exactly. And then we actually even had an online summer camp where uh, we had several hundred uh, kids uh, participate. And, uh, uh, and then the staff is also working on uh, a lot of the uh, nuances of, uh, of our volunteer program where, uh, so that when the volunteers do come back, we're gonna have a whole new uh, uh, script form uh, for tours. We've uh, working on a new exhibit, you know, a jellyfish exhibit. We, uh, you know, we have obtained some monitors and now we're putting it, downloading information on the monitors and stuff. So, you know, the hatchery, although, you know, impacted socially by the pandemic, as far as work goes, we've never stopped. And uh, <laughs> this year we produced 10, uh, 10 million total fingerlings, uh, about 3 million spot, spotted sea trout and 7 million uh, red drum and that's for the that's just for us you know uh, the uh, hatchery and corpus and uh, hatchery and and uh, palaces they met their goals as well so we we produced uh, oh, around 20 million fish this year in total well that's awesome you know david i've known you for a long long time and i know pat has known you for a long long time so pat does this surprise you at all <laughs> oh goodness no the uh the, the work ethic, well, across the whole department, um, but, but clearly within Sea Center and, and Coastal Fisheries um, Division is incredible. And, and so it doesn't surprise me one bit that the dedication to 
um, creating those greater outputs and outcomes for our, our natural resources um, is obviously on mind for, for all of those folks and executing it. Uh, none of that surprises me, but that was a wonderful way um, to hear it presented, David, and, uh, very inspiring. Well, thank you. Yes. Always mission focused, always, uh, always mission, mission focused. Always. And you know, you've been, you talked about a lot of the things that, you know, you do as a matter of course and that you've done for years, but there's also some new things in the work that works that I want to talk about. Um, Cause I know y'all are finishing up the new flounder building, which was made possible through a partnership with Texas Parks and Wildlife Foundation and the Coastal Conservation Association. Just tell me, how's that going? Well, I'm proud to say that the building is finished. Uh, we, uh, I think the last time we spoke a couple of months ago, we still had a few things that we needed to do to it. But uh, we have larvae in the founder building. We are, uh, there's two sections to the, to the new founder building. There's a larval uh, section, which is our incubation room. And then we have a, uh, a rotifer artemia room where we create uh, first uh, feed uh, for the for the flounder both of both rooms are up and running right now and uh we're, and right now the big thing for us is just to learn how to run the building you know we have a bunch of new equipment in there uh it's all brand new to us as far as uh you know temperature controls and uh, and uh just sterilization and just running water through it and just learning the system so uh, but we are finally have our new founder building up and running and it is great. That's, great. <laughs> That's awesome to hear. So Pat, tell us why did CCA support this project? You know, um, a lot of reasons. Uh, flounder definitely matter a lot to Texas anglers. I mean, goodness, they're the classic one of the Texas big three. Um, and so there's, there is a deep adoration for flounder in this state and, and among our members and, and, and our volunteer and staff leadership. Um, you know, flounder is a funny species among recreational anglers. It's almost like a cult for it, if you ever noticed. I, I, <laughs> I grew up in a very flounder-centric family. My, my dad was one of those flounder culties. And, um, but it's funny how that, that fish gets into your heart. And one of my- Why do you think that is, Pat? Yeah, tell me, why do you think that is? Well, it's funny, because, it, and it's funny, I was thinking about this recently, is that um, one of my earliest memories um, is of my dad swinging this Martian looking fish up on a pier in Port Aransas. And, and it's interesting when, when I pull back and say, well, my earliest memories aren't of my first bike ride or my first day at school. It's, it's of a flounder. And, um, and I think it's, it gets into your heart like that because the species is unique. Um, its style of ambush is sh almost shocking in its ability to, um, disguise itself and 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 target prey. I've, I've often mused if they grew to a thousand pounds, they would have been the star of Jaws, and we wouldn't <laughs> have we wouldn't have recreational saltwater swimming. Um, so it's a really cool fish. Um, and and but the other thing is it's subject to a lot of pressures. Um, you know, it's a popular sport fish. It's a popular commercial fish. Um, and as David could speak more depthly than I, it's it's very sensitive to temperature in terms of recruitment and maybe more importantly, recruitment failure. And so for, for CCA um, and our mission, this, this is a very important species. 
Plus, they're delicious, I might add. Oh, my gosh. Wonderful, <laughs> wonderful fish to eat. Wonderful I fish love to seafood, catch. but I love flounder. So, yeah, you know, that's they, a good segue to dive into a little bit of the science here and, and, and kind of why this flounder building um, is necessary. So, David, give us a little, you know, background on that is why did TPWD get into the flounder production business in the first place? Well, Lydia, you know, and Pat, oh, uh, Back in the day when we started the Red Drum, uh, it was in, it was in response to the decline in population when we started working with the Red Drum. And the whole idea of the hatcheries back then was to be able to supplement population, natural population with hatchery reared fish. And so, you know, at the, uh, throughout the time, uh, Robert Vega, Dr. Robert Vega was our, our stock enhancement director and Robert was a visionary and he was there in the early days of the red drum. And then also when we developed uh, our techniques for spotted sea trout as well. And, uh, and we, we, were, we always look ahead. We're always trying to look ahead to see where we can be of service. And, and the flounder population has been in decline uh, for, you know, for a number of reasons and for a while. And uh, we dabbled in working with flounder back in the early nineties, you know, uh, it was a student, uh, working on a doctorate one time and down in Corpus, we dabbled with it, but they were difficult fish to work with. And, and then uh, there's been some research that was done in the nineties uh, and along the East coast and some, a couple of States tried working with them and they didn't do so well. You know, uh, research was there, uh, the ability to, to get them to spawn and, and to rear them was known, but to be able to do it in a semi-intensive environment, like a hatchery, had never really been done before. And uh, Robert and, and our coastal managers, they, they, they could see that, you know, there was, that there was going to be a need uh, to be able to maybe learn how to rear these fish and to be able to supplement them into the, popula into the population. And uh, so, so with Robert's urging and, and, and with the CCA's help, by the way, uh, we were able to, uh, to start the program. Uh, Robert, uh, like I say, he was a visionary and, and, and of course, you know, he left it up to us to try and figure out how to do it, but he pretty much was telling us, you will do it, you know? And, uh, and I think that, uh, it, it was timely. It was timely because as you know, the population, uh, is, um, uh, decreasing if, if not just holding steady and, uh, our program has become very important. And we have over the years since we started, we've been able to uh, say close the loop, basically, which is that we were we know how to spawn them, we know how to incubate them, we know how to rear them, and we can we can get them to to the point of uh, metamorphosis, and and we can stock them. Now, doing that on a consistent basis is is the challenge. That's the tricky part, right? That's <laughs> the tricky part, you know, because they are a complicated fish. And then also I might add that, you know, through the years, you know, the, we're, we're trying to raise Southern flounder in a redfish spotted sea trout facility. And, and which meant that, you know, our infrastructure, our tanks, our lights, our equipment was all geared for red drum and spotted sea trout. Southern flounder is completely different. You know, uh, we can raise red drum and spotted sea trout from January to November with the uh, flounder uh, at, Given what the equipment that we had, we could only do it during the winter because that's that's when they spawn. 
So we were limited in time and we're limited in, uh, in space as far as that. So every year we transformed our incubator room to, to be able to rear uh, Southern Flounder. And then when that was done, we had to go back and, and to be able to do Red Drum and Spotted Sea Trout. So we, had, we developed the equipment and, uh, and, we're, and we were able to adapt but what makes the uh, flounder so complicated is their life history. Pat alluded to it, you know, uh, they, they deliver small number of eggs. You need a lot of flounder to be able to work with them. They have a complicated larval stage, you know, their, their, their temper tolerance is very narrow, especially during the larval stage and they grow very slowly. So where it may take, uh, it may take 30, days to rear a, a red drum to like 35 to about an inch in size, it takes twice the amount of time to do that for Southern Flounder. And we can only do it indoors right now. Uh, so it, uh, it expends a lot of energy, you know, it goes through a metamorphosis. And so uh, be, being able to, to rear them consistently is a major challenge. Hmm. You know, I've been involved with Parks and Wildlife now through the department and the foundation for, gosh, it's 30 years now. And I can still remember when I came into the department, I didn't know anything about, you know, fisheries or fisheries biology. And I remember my astonishment when I was like, y'all make fish? What? <laughs> and yeah. you know what? 30 years later, I'm still fascinated by it. So it's uh, quite interesting. Um, so... You know, I, I, wanted, I was going to add, you know, uh, I was intrigued when, when Pat said about the, the love of flounder. Yeah. You know, it's amazing because, you know, uh, I'm, 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 I've been around a long time. And, of course, you know, I was around when we are doing the Red Drum Spot of Sea Trout. We have a new group of, of, uh, of biologists now. And their main task and fu uh, function right now is southern flounder. And... Uh, and we have that love that Pat's talking about, <laughs> you know, yeah. but it's, but it's in rearing the fish. It's in, it's in uh, all the little successes and all the little failures that we're going through in order to get to the point where we can actually rear those ones and, and stock them. You know, we've, we've stocked over uh, almost half a million fish at this point. And uh, the, the work that our young biologists are doing is, 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 is a labor of love much like Pat's talking about, you know, they are fully invested in this and, and, and it's going to be going on for a while. So these new folks, their, their career is going to be about Southern flounder. That's awesome. Cool. Yeah, cool. And you know, the science and the research and, you know, we, we talk about that and Pat, I'd like you to reflect a little bit just about the research that underpins this, the science that underpins all of this, you know, I mean, how do we know, and I mean, I, I know the answer, but I want you to explain it. I mean, how do we know that flounder were declining? Uh, how do we continue to improve on our fishery hatchery techniques? And I know, Pat, that's something you've been watching for decades now. Your, your thoughts about that? Yeah, you've landed on a really interesting question because you're speaking to that, that odd nexus that exists where policy and science and, and hatchery production and all of these things intertwine and, and where you find that connection. And so what drives all this is sort of all of the above. 
it's it's having the amazing set of scientists, which in this state we're blessed to have. I mean, with the department and with some of the amazing marine science institutes we have here, um, we just we have that science that keeps evolving and growing, and and it ties back to you know and 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 David, I thought you really described it well there. The passion that exists in in recreational angling um, is just as profound in the scientists that are working behind the scenes or the policy folks that are working either in Austin or DC. And it's that energy that goes into it that helps drive the change. And that's where you see this amazing um, progress in things like hatcheries. And um, I was reflecting on when C Center opened. And I remember that was right around the time I started with CCA I remember and, that day, 1996, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, and uh, and it's neat to reflect back. I remember Andy Sampson and others speaking, but but talking about the real impact these hatcheries could have, particularly in times of crisis. And so it ties perfectly with what's going on with with Southern Flounder, not just in Texas, because we got to remember this issue is mm -hmm. far bigger than Texas. This is, you know, throughout the Gulf of Mexico and the South Atlantic, they're dealing with the same flounder problems. Um, driven by many of the same causes. They vary a little bit between states on, in, in some, uh, some applications. But, but in the end, where this hatchery science comes in and what it can do to help augment failing year classes, and particularly in areas that are, are really susceptible to that due to hot water, um, hotter winters, that sort of thing, um, it gets pretty exciting because you start to say, not, you know, not what's going on, but what can we do? And it puts tools in this tool chest of really good conservation and then good management of those resources as you rebuild them. It really is that nexus where, where policy and conservation and science all come together. And so it's pretty exciting stuff. You know, the other thing that, that seems to come together whenever there's a need is, you know, organizations like CCA, and if I can say myself, Texas Parks and Wildlife Foundation, For come sure. to the table to help because we can't depend on government or the state of Texas or TPWD to do it all themselves. Yeah. And CCA, y'all have been there pretty much every step, every step of the way. And David, I know we've talked about how long you've been with Texas Parks and Wildlife Department at the top of this. And I know that you have a personal history with CCA's long involvement you know, with the Coastal Fisheries Division. Can you reflect a little bit on that relationship? Well, I, uh, yes, I have. Uh, um, you know, ever since I've started in the 90s, uh, CCA's been there. You know, uh, of course, I started down at the uh, GCC, at the time, the GCCA Marine Development Center mm -hmm. in Corpus. And that was the very first partnership that CCA had with Texas Parks and Wildlife and the CPNL uh, power plant that was there. And uh, as long as I've been, with the department, CCA has been there. Uh, you know, uh, when I was down in Corpus, you know, uh, I remember there was some research projects going on and, and the people that were doing it were funded by CCA. They, uh, very, very, the very first school outreach school program that was developed was funded and put together by CCA. And we, we would deliver it to, to a local school there. Uh, monies, uh, Every summer, there was a we had an intern uh, there at the hatchery uh, that was funded by CCA, and uh, they've always been there. Uh, there were I actually was a uh, am a CCA member, and I 
did serve on the board down in Corpus Christi while I was a hatchery manager down there. And, uh, and, and it's been nothing but a positive experience, you know, uh, all through my career, uh, you know, CCA has been there. Uh, they've, uh, they've supported our research. They've, they've bought, uh, they've paid for equipment. The, the very first one we had to, uh, when we decided to do the flounder, you know, one of the main problems with flounder is flounder, having flounder. And because they produce so little eggs, we have to have hundreds of flounder, you know. And not only did the CCA help us get a flounder boat to be able to collect, but they also had a major effort where the very first year they helped us, uh, their, their members helped us collect uh, flounder for the project. And that's been the case ever since. So, uh, you know, I, I can't say enough about the CCA as, a, as an organization and they're a model actually, you know, uh, we've, we've gone to several, we've worked with several states, whether it's been with Red Drum or Spotted Sea Trout. I remember going to Mississippi, you know, to talk about uh, them starting up a Spotted Sea Trout program. And, and, and then also, um, we're working with a couple of states on, on Southern Flounder now. And at each one of those places, the CCA has been intrinsically involved, you know, for those states as well, not just Texas, you know, and uh, uh, they've been a great partner. Uh, they're very receptive to us. And, and it's not just, you know, it's not just hatcheries anymore. You know, they, uh, there's yearly uh, internships. They've helped us they've helped us in the development of our staff actually as well by uh, by you know helping us recruit interns uh, and and personnel and uh, you know they've always been a very strong proponent of what we do and uh, and what coastal fisheries does as well and the department so, you know yeah so cca has been intrinsically involved with the department for a long 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 time and and Pat, I know you've been involved with CCA. Uh, is it a quarter century yet? Is it more than a quarter century? Yeah, we're creeping up on it. You, you don't have to say it that way. <laughs> um, when you start, start referencing in centuries, all of a sudden I'm like, oh my goodness. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, tell us a little bit about your backstory of how you got involved with CCA and where that journey has taken you. You know, um, it's been wonderful. I was, uh, you know, I grew up knowing GCCA um, and, you know, with a, again, a, a family that enjoyed saltwater fishing. I, of course, you know, if you, if you enjoy saltwater fishing in Texas, um, you should be a member of CCA, but even if you're not, you, you know what CCA is. And so at that time, knowing what GCCA was, um, I was, I always marveled at it. And anytime a, a Gulf Tide or Tide magazine would show up, um, it was the extra cool factor that these folks, these guys and gals that were GCCA and became CCA, um, they were working on this policy side and they were working with the department and they were not only enjoying the resource, but they were trying to improve it. And, and there was a power there and a vision there that at the time I probably didn't know, but it was what became a budding interest in social enterprise and in mission-based um, work. And, and so um, I started fish guiding when in college um, 
decided to do that full time for some time on the upper Texas coast. And then I really got to know and understand CCA. Um, I met, you know, I really got to see the people that were the local chapter leaders. And, and I got to see the hands-on work that was going on throughout that organization and the impact it was making. Um, the legends of the Gilnet bands and what have you were, were still there, but I was seeing things that were tactically and strategically getting done. And I really wanted to be a part of that. And, um, and so I was fortunate to get hired um, in the 90s. And, um, and boy, what it's done for me as a personally enriching experience, the people I've met, the people I've worked with, um, some of the most impressive people on the volunteer and staff side uh, throughout the organization, because just as we've sort of been thematically talking about being at the department or being at, at a group like CCA is these folks are driven and they're driven for good and they want resources better tomorrow than they are today. And they want people to have good access to those. And, um, and honestly, this world just needs more of that. There is never a problem with great stewards leading a great mission to get even better results. And so I just got completely intoxicated by it and, um, and have thrown myself in it 100%. And uh, I've been, like I say, with the organization approaching a quarter of a century. <laughs> and this is my seventh role within the organization. And, um, and I just can't imagine any other journey. And like I say, getting to know you know, the amazing people like, like, like you and like David along the way, it's it, everyone in here is so passion driven. It's really inspiring. So we've been talking about coastal fisheries, the coastal fisheries division at Texas parks and wildlife department, which is sure. fair with this David is our, our guest here. Um, but I know that, that, the, that's not, that y'all aren't just focused on the coastal fishery division. I know y'all have been funding game warden interns through the Texas parks and wildlife foundation for years now. Tell yeah. us a little bit about that, Pat. Yeah, um, you know, we, I kind of touched a little just fraction of it earlier when I was talking about, you know, where policy and science and conservation met. Well, one of the pieces of that is enforcement um, because you can do all the science and policy work in the world, but without enforcement, um, you've lost a critical tool. And, um, and so our early framers knew very early on that game wardens um, are vital. In, in the cycle of conservation. And so be it funding um, equipment or interns or trying to help out in various efforts to, you know, create training opportunities or whatever it may be um, with this incredible group of game wardens we have in this state. Um, that's always been a part of CCA's mission. And, and it's been an important part of a lot of the great conservation outcomes that have happened in this state. Um, those are definitely the cool cats. There's no doubt about it. I, I don't think there's any angler out there that doesn't think those game wardens are an important part of what is helping keep our resource strong. And what they do um, in my time with a, as, a, as a board member for Parks and Wildlife Foundation, I got an even deeper appreciation um, for what those folks do and the many things that people have no clue, be it working on the border, be it working offshore, dealing with uh, illegal fishing practices. Um, it's not just, you know, the things they might visualize at a boat ramp or in a local bay. Um, these folks do some really tough work and, um, and some of their investigative work uh, is just phenomenal to keep our, our, our important resources and all of us safe. 
You know, I've, I've had the opportunity to talk to some of those interns, um, many, if not all, who have actually become game wardens. Yeah. And they talked about how important that internship was to them. For some of them, they had never had an experience like that. And it really opened their eyes and literally changed their lives. So so thank you for that. You, yeah. you mentioned the Parks and Wildlife Foundation board service. And just one more question about that, Pat. Just, do you want to reflect a little bit about y'all's connection with the Texas Parks and Wildlife Foundation and your personal connection with the foundation. Oh, goodness. Yeah, I can. Well, I, as you know, I can always reflect on the Parks and Wildlife Foundation. I um, haven't been a past board member. It's, it's you know, one of the few boards you roll. Usually when you roll off a board, you kind of celebrate it. Um, that's about the <laughs> only one that left a hollow, hollow spot in my heart. That's that's been an amazing partnership that CCA has had. Um, and 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 again, it gets it's funny. It keeps getting down to mission and people and almost everything we're talking about. But when you think about, you know, the Annie Browns and, and Susan Houston's and then the, the, the and all of the other great team there, Merrill and everybody. And then and then the volunteer leadership, Kelly Thompson, Mike Green, Mark Bivens, I can go on and on and on. But what it is, is these people that bring together public, private, all these different pieces and and cobble together these amazing projects like like keeping a wild reef um was an amazing project where we were saying you know what we're going to build at that time there's been several since but the first million dollar reef let's put a million dollar reef out there um when when there were a lot of questions about uh red snapper and and sure enough you bring these people together and you know it happens and um and so it's that is a very important part of the conservation of, of Texas resources. And it's, it's things like the foundation, but it's also the amazing partnerships that it helps to weave together. So um, it's a model for other states, to be perfectly honest with you. It is a truly a model for many other states in the Gulf and beyond. That's awesome. Now, Pat, I know how busy you are with your with your day job, um, but I, I understand that in your spare time, you've been working on another project, um, a book. Tell us about that. Oh yeah, I did. I um, actually worked worked with um, with the Texas A&M University Press and just released a fishing book. I know that's a shocker, a fishing <laughs> book, but, um, <laughs> but it's it's called "It's More Than Fishing." Um, you can buy it on Amazon or you know your local retailer. Um, many of them carry it, um, but really it, it, it was a fun moment for me um, to explore some of the great people um, that are in conservation, that are in fishing. Um, if anyone's read any of my stuff, you know it's usually a little goofy and a little preachy um, about how great fishing is and what an important art form it is, that it really is a lot more than just fishing. It's uh, it's all the amazing things that go into it. And just like any other great art form, be it culinary arts or fine arts or any of them, it's, it's really an admirable practice. And what makes it admirable in so many ways is not just the enjoyment of doing it um, and, and the refining of it, which is pretty cool, but is all of the outputs. And that's what manifests in the conservation and in the drive to make a difference. And all of these things we've been talking about um, through this podcast. So fun little project. Um, and, um, and I, if anybody wants to take a look at it, do. Um, and I hope they do enjoy it. <laughs> well, it's about that time to be thinking about holiday gift giving. So we've just offered a great <laughs> idea for folks out there. So there's that. Man, um, I need you as my agent. Dang. That's <laughs> <laughs> that could be arranged, Pat. <laughs> Well, you know, I could talk to you guys for another couple of hours, but we probably ought to wrap this up. And 
David, I, I want to do a wrap-up question for you. Just, just let us know what are the upcoming priorities for C Center. What's on your near horizon? Well, uh, of course, working with uh, Southern Flounder this winter. Uh, we've already begun, and in fact, uh, you know, one of the things about the new building that's going to be great for us is because we have temperature control now. Is that uh, we're going to be able to extend the amount of time that we work on Southern Flounder from now on. We used to just be able to work with them from say October, November to to March. But uh, we actually have a group of fish that are going to be spawning in June, and we're going to start uh, our we're going to extend our uh, production for another two or three more months. So we're hoping that that's going to uh, help us increase the number of fish that we produce. But uh, the southern flounder, we continue our work. You know, we've we got to train our folks. We got to uh, do our research. We've got to uh, continue to refine our techniques, and so that's a big part of the next four or five months for us, you know, and, and as you know, hatchery work never stops and hatchery work is, is uh, there's always something to do. So we, we've just finished on our Southern, on our spotted sea trout and red drum production. And we're already preparing for uh, production to begin in the spring. Uh, we, we start uh, production of those species in, in March and April. So we're focused on that. And, and that entails all kinds of work, you know, from working on trailers and pickup trucks to uh, fixing equipment, uh, motors, pumps, taking care of the fish, all that, you know, the daily, the daily life of a fish cultures. But we're also <laughs> looking forward to uh, possibly, uh, well, I'm looking forward to bringing our volunteers back and, go, and getting back to 100% over here. I, uh, I believe that we're going to be able to learn how to live with this thing or hopefully, you know, be able to adapt to it. And uh, so we're preparing for our volunteers to come back and uh, we're getting the facility ready and uh, we're taking care of our facility. So, it, you know, it's, you know, it's funny that we, what are the priorities? The priorities are the same priorities we have all the time, which mm -hmm. is ongoing all the time, which is produce fish, get ready to produce fish, and stock fish, you know. So that's going to be our main focus is for the next several months, Southern Flounder is the big thing for us. I love it. That's awesome. <laughs> well, and Pat, I would ask you the same thing. What are the priorities for CCA? And, and also just let folks know how they can get involved with CCA. Oh, you bet. That's great. Um, you know, they can always go to joincca.org. Um, that's our national website. Uh, that can lead them to any state chapter that they're interested in looking at, plus many of our programs, be it science of conservation or our, our habitat program, building conservation trust. There's, there's a lot of info on there, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good um, good stopping spot to find what your next journey would be into conservation, be it a local chapter or, or one of these programs. Um, and when, when you say priorities with us, it's, uh, it's funny. You kind of led with it. I mean, it's election time. And so um, I'm not gonna say that's a priority, but what it will do is it will be an important part of us working to some of these priorities, because no matter what, if an office changes mm -hmm. in an election or, um, or stays the same, it, it usually is not the same after the election. So be it working with incumbents that we work with in the past, be it working with new legislators on the state and federal level, um, working with decision makers throughout the chain is constantly evolving and, um, and never more so than in years like this. So 
um, the priorities of conservation and of science and of marine habitat will stay the same, but we will become very, very focused um, as we have been on working with um, our local state and federal leaders to make sure the interests of conservation um, and of recreational angling are, are kept in the forefront and, um, and, and are prioritized the way we hope they will be. And I think I speak for everybody who loves the fisheries resources, you know, in, in our coastal waters. Uh, thank you. <laughs> We're glad you're there. And thank you both for being with us. I, I, I enjoy doing these podcasts, but never more than when I get to talk to two, two friends. So I really appreciate y'all taking the time to be with us today. Oh, it's an honor. Thank you, Lydia. Thanks. Good talking to you, Pat. Yeah, couldn't, couldn't be happier to, to have had this conversation. We should, we should do it more often. And, and hopefully in person sooner than later. Yep. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Okay, take care. Brought to you by Texas Parks and Wildlife Foundation, We Will Not Be Tamed calls us all to appreciate the wildness of Texas, the vastness of our Texas spirit, and why we should be inspired to conserve it. Find out more at wewillnotbetamed.org.